Hi everybody, this is Tamsin Wolf, and this is the 10th episode of Bullseye and this one is called The Exorcism. Thanks so much again for your support and for staying with me through all of this. This ep doesn't come with any particular trigger warnings really for it doesn't describe any actual full-on child abuse in so many words. So yeah, no particular warnings today and I hope you stay with us to hear the whole lot. And I just want to apologise too for my bloody hay fever that I'm experiencing at the moment. Where I live in northeastern New South Wales, Australia, it is stinking hot at the moment and so humid and muggy is what my mum would have said. And it's just, yeah, sweaty and awful. And I have some of the worst hay fever I've had for years. I'm coughing and spluttering and sniffing and nose wiping and all that kind of thing because all these flowers have come out a little bit sort of prematurely, I think, due to the humidity and the weird bursts of rain and I don't know what's going on. But anyway, um, I do tend to suffer a little bit with the hay fever. So I've taken a tablet so it won't be so bad while I'm recording. But yeah, I do apologise for the errant sneezes and sniffs that are no doubt going to sneak into my dialogue. Anyway, yes, this episode, I mean, sorry, is called The Exorcism and it comes just right about the end of the last episode after the birthday party one with all the broken presents. And it was when my mum actually went to look for a place for what I thought was to be for her, myself and my little brother to live. And at the time had no idea I'd be virtually living there alone. And so, yeah, she was still in the process of looking at this stage. And I just wanted to throw in this bit too, this is why I've called the episode what I have called it, is because there was a very significant event just before I actually moved out completely of the home with my stepfather, or the house, it certainly wasn't a home. And I made the fatal mistake of telling my mum that I had been experiencing very disturbing kind of voices in my head for the last few weeks. And in hindsight, when I look at it, and I think quite obviously and clearly as a 13-year-old, I had some sort of PTSD going on. It was very clear to me now because I'd heard nothing but yelling voices and deep male yelling voices, which is what I was hearing in my head. And I'd heard nothing but that in real life for the last however many years. So I don't think it was any surprise or shock that I had some sort of repercussion from that. And it used to happen really badly when I was alone and when things were particularly quiet, I'd have roaring male voices in my head and it was obviously very traumatic and I couldn't stop it. And a lot of the time I couldn't sleep because of it. And um, it certainly wasn't due to any kind of you know typical mental illness that where voices are involved. I know that now it just clearly that wasn't what was going on to me. Yeah, just all trauma-related stuff that would have been pretty understandable. So, yeah, I remember telling my mum that and at the stage that I told her, um, it was one of my mother's and my stepfather's times of a brief foray into some kind of newborn, what do you call it, not newborn, what do you call it, born again Christian thing that they were going through and I have no idea what that was about and what brought that on at the time, but I know that they were involved with the local kind of like, I don't know whether you call it Anglican or that sort of church, but yeah, near where we lived. And 
the solution, the bright idea that my mum had, and I would dare say my stepfather had something to do with it as well, was to call in the two main priests from that church and to have their 13-year-old child exercised. And by that I don't mean jumping up and down on a little trampoline. I mean they they called in two priests from the church. I was sat in a straight-backed chair with my wrists tied to the sides, apparently so I couldn't strike out at anybody as if that was anything I was ever going to do. It was, wasn't part of who I was or what I was at all, but it was so ridiculous. And I remember for hours on end having these priests either side of me uh, yelling, <laughs> can you believe the theory they come come up with when it was supposed to be that this was to help me with my male yelling voices? So they brought another couple in and they yelled Bible verses at me and you know did all the whole movie thing of you know, you, the devil shall be cast out and all that kind of business. And, you know, not saying, I don't want to say striking me over the head with a Bible, but hitting me on the head with a Bible to emphasize their words. I didn't mean to the point of knocking me out or anything, but they were very physical. And yeah, so that was the big solution for the obvious trauma that I had experienced just before I was to leave this place. So, yeah, that's just to provide a little bit more insight into the bizarre nature of my mother's thinking and or not thinking and the really bizarre solutions she'd come up with if ever I approached her for help in any way, which I learned very quickly after that never to do again. And so yeah, where this takes up is after the birthday party one, my mum was looking for a place to put me more or less. And I remember that I needed to get out of the place we were in before she actually found a place. Like only with, there was only a few days difference in it between me having to get out of the place because it got so bad in the house with my stepfather that I had to get out. And it was, you know, possibly four or five days, I think, before mum had found a place for us to move into. So what she did, and I guess this is understandable, that she put me in the car. I remember she met with a few of my belongings and stuff, just put me in the car and drove me at what seemed to take all day, but I, I don't think it really could have, but it seemed in my mind that it just seemed to take forever, but drove around looking for somewhere that I'd be safe for a few days, or that's what I told myself she was doing it for. To before she could move me into this little flat that she'd apparently almost gotten or was about to get. And the first place she drove to was my sister's house. I don't talk a lot about my sister, and I, there's a lot of reasons for that. I don't believe I've ever been so hurt and betrayed by a single person in my life more than my sister. And so I always find it very hard to talk about her because... I desperately all I ever wanted was an older sibling that was going to look out for me and and loved me unconditionally and I know I've just wanted that so badly and I realized quite early on that that was never going to happen with her either and again you know whatever excuse needs to be made but she had her own demons to deal with she'd lived through some of this stuff herself she'd been chopped and changed and thrown around and probably felt very unwanted herself I would say and so she would have been if I was 13 she was about 18 at the time 
and she was living in in to be honest what really was a very tiny little flat that was on the other side of town to where we lived and she had just moved in there with her boyfriend who I think was about the same age as her or possibly a little bit older and even though it was really really tiny we only needed somewhere for me to be you know for literally as I say four or five days or something just or maybe not probably less than that until mum could manage to move into this place I don't know whether she was waiting to get money for the bond or something I don't know I remember mum running into my sister's little place and just obviously asking her if I could just stay on their lounge, their sofa, for a few days until this all happened. And I just didn't see any there being any problem. I don't think mum did either. It was just kind of to me that, oh, thank goodness I had somewhere to go and somewhere to be safe for a few days. And I really adored my sister at this stage and, you know, had total trust in her. And still, I was very young. I didn't realize what was really going on in my life, I think, but I wanted to believe in her as a you know, devoted big sister at the time, so I didn't see any big issue with it. But I remember mum running in to ask about it and then mum coming back to the car and crying. Oh, I can't believe I'm getting teary again. I really thought I was going to get through this one without teariness, but I'll just keep talking. And she was crying and she just said, she doesn't want you here they don't want you to stay and I didn't really understand why and then the next thing I knew was her boyfriend actually came out to the car as if my sister had sent him out rather than her come out to talk to me and it was just another episode with um that happens throughout my family with the women in my family and extended family that the men very very much control their every move and thought and that is very widespread in my family and something that I've really, I thank my lucky stars every day that I never, I won't say I never went down the path of doing, but I certainly would never again. And so I'd like to think I broke that cycle to some degree. But yeah, they were very, you know, hiding behind their men kind of women and still are. And I remember that she had obviously, my sister had sent him out to sort of tell me the reasons why. I couldn't stay there and I don't have any idea what he said because I just remembered being so absolutely mortified and distraught. I don't know what his reasons were, but I just knew that they didn't want me there. And again, that was possibly one of the most desolate moments in my life of just really understanding how bleak things were and how I literally had nowhere to go in the world, nowhere at all. And so that was... After that, we drove round the corner, literally round the corner, to a, a school friend of mine that was a pretty close friend. We spent quite a lot of time together. But the reason that my mum drove to their place is because her mum was a you know really high up in the Salvation Army where we lived. And when I say high up, I don't know what the proper you know what you call them or anything or what the ranks are. But she was very well known in the community. Uh, what was her name? Robin, I think. Yeah, that seems right. She was yeah very high up in the community, very highly thought of, and obviously because she was the Salvation Army lady, Mum probably assumed wrongly that she might give a crap about what was going on and take me in for a few days. And I remember the same thing happened. Mum walked to their apartment and went and spoke to the mum just for a few minutes and again came back to the car crying. 
because she'd been told by the lady that I, the lady had said to her, Robin, or the, my friend's mum had said that I didn't need somewhere to stay. I needed a mother who was going to pull me into line and tell me what to do and, you know, mother me properly, which in that way would have been true that she, I needed a mother, but she was very much blaming me as well and saying, if you know, that if I learned to do what I was told and etc then you know everything would be all right she just wasn't listening mum was saying I was in physical danger from my stepfather and you know it was just another thing that started me on the road of just not trusting anybody and anything for a very long time because I really realized her tambourine playing soul was all for show this lady from the Salvation Army it was just she was an incredibly hard-hearted mean-spirited woman and from the things that she had said to my mum that day and just flat out refused to help us. And, of course, she couldn't imagine how devastating that one was as well. It was just like a moment of, oh, fuck, what do we do now? And then I think there might have been, I'm not sure that there was another place in between these places of where I ended up, but uh, this is where the story gets to a very days of our lives kind of stage there's lots of moments of days of our lives stages, but this is a real corker. Just moving the microphone a bit, sorry. That my mum decided in her infinite wisdom to drive to the home of the man that she at the time was having an affair with. This is what I found out later. I didn't know anything about it at the time. He was the husband of one of my mother's closest friends. And I just thought, you know, that was all on the up and up. Mum had a nice friend who was a woman obviously and married to this nice man that I thought were just friends of the family and later to find out that the lady's husband and my mum were in the midst of a torrent affair. And so, as I say, in her infinite wisdom, why she took me there, I will never know. But I think she was just probably really desperate and didn't know what to do at that point, didn't know where to put me. And I remember driving to his house and he lived in a very affluent you know, posh area of where we lived because they were quite wealthy, I think, and asked them if I could stay there. And they said yes. And I can only imagine how weird and awkward all of that must have been. I mean, I can't as a child, I can't even begin to picture what was going on there. But when I look back on it now, I feel like it must have been really obvious that something was going on between this man and my mum. It must have been obvious to his wife. And I can't see how it wouldn't have been, but anyway, it was all just beyond odd. It was the 80s after all. And so they said that they would have me and I lived in this really lovely house and I had my own little room and everything. It was actually really lovely for, I don't know how many days, say maybe four or five days. And my strongest memory of it is just the sweetness. I mean, obviously he wasn't a good man like none of the men in these stories are. I don't want to pretend he was a good-hearted man or the good-hearted man I thought he was because obviously he wasn't with from what he was doing behind his wife's back but he was very very kind to me and I just used to think he was the sweetest man in the world and wish he was my dad because he'd bring me every morning before he went to work yeah he worked on a boat marina thing so he'd be there really really early and before he'd leave he'd wake me up and give me breakfast in bed every morning with a cup of tea and honey on toast, and I just absolutely, <laughs> viscerally hated honey. I always have and always will. 
Uh, not so much when it's mixed up in a drink for some reason, but when it's on toast or on a sandwich, I just absolutely hated the taste and texture and everything else, the smell of honey even, I absolutely hated. But I remember every morning that he brought me the breakfast in bed, I ate that toast and drank that tea, whether I liked it or not. I forced it down because I didn't want him to be kind of uncomfortable or feel embarrassed that he was bringing me something for breakfast every morning that I hated was all my heart and soul. And so that's my strongest memory is forcing this honey toast down. And every time now I see or smell honey on toast, I think of him. But to me, he was a very sweet and kind man. And then after that, I remember being at their house for a while. And then it was maybe only for another couple of days after that, that I moved out of that place and was put with another one of my mum's friends that lived very, very close to where we'd lived, still at the motel where we lived and where they'd managed it. But these people that lived around the corner that were just very, very simple, humble folk and were, again, just absolutely lovely to me and doted on me the whole time I was there, which was, you know, I will never forget these things. I'll never forget these people getting teary again that were so good to me in this time because I soaked up every little iota of love that was coming at me because it didn't feel like there was much a lot of the time. So these people that were very kind to me, I'll always remember and always be grateful for. A few of them have passed away now at this point as they were older people. Yeah, but I'll never forget them. And then I remember being at that house with these other people around the corner and then being moved into this little tiny flat that mum had found us. And I remember that even as we moved in there, because she hardly moved anything in, there was just like a, I think there was one little couch and there was the TV. The best thing that I remember is that the saving grace was the record player came with her. So she did bring a record player and I had all my records that were just my, yeah, they were the be all and end all. The joy in my life were my records and my music. So at least I had a record player. I'll always be grateful for that. But there was very little else there. We, she didn't certainly didn't decorate anything, or there wasn't any sort of pretty things around or anything. And she, I, to my recollection, I would say the whole time I was there, I don't recall her doing a shop and bringing food home ever, not ever. And I can honestly say I'm. You know, say in a court of law, I don't believe that ever happened. But then I would also admit to maybe that I can't remember occasions when she did. But I just said I can feel and see and remember the the energy of the little tiny kitchen that was in this place, and it just never had any food in it. There was never any food. There was a little fridge that came with the flat, and there was never any food in it. And obviously, you know, at the start when all this was going on, I thought that all of that would hopefully change, that it was a very sparse, empty flat with no warmth or sense of home or anything at all. There was two bedrooms and my mum did put a bed of her own in one bedroom and in the other bedroom there was two single beds with me and my little brother, was supposed to be for me and my little brother, who was about three at the time. I absolutely and I don't don't talk about him much either because there's a bit of a sad outcome to our relationship as well, which is pretty much directly leading to my relationship with my sister and very outright lies that she's told him about me that he's unfortunately believed, which has broken my heart many times. But 
I can't do anything about that at this point. So we are also estranged, me and my little brother, but I absolutely adored him and always did every day of his life. He was a beautiful little boy and a beautiful big boy. And he and I, you know, we were very close, you know, even then as children, even though from the time that we moved into that flat, I didn't see him very much. And on the times I did see him, he was left there with me alone for me to look after. But Holly and Sully, so mum could go back to my stepfather, you know, at the motel that they managed. She, I could see now, as I look back on it again, hindsight being twenty twenty and all that, that you, that I, I just can see she never had any intention at all of staying there or living in this place or making it a home for us or providing any kind of safety or protection or peace or healing there in any way after everything that had gone on. She just wanted somewhere to dump me so she could go back and be with him, I li- literally physically go back and be with him and leave me alone. I would say 95% of the time I was in this place completely alone and there's a lot of stories that start from this point that are about the different forms and different stories of abuse that begin to happen as a result of me being alone all the time in that place. They do get a little bit grisly from here on as I was in a, obviously a very, very vulnerable, very naive, very lost little child. And, you know, not that I think it can ever be said, you know, by any victim or, you know, on behalf of any victim that they have brought in anything intentionally into their lives because that's just not true and it shits me to death when people say stuff like that. But the lonely, naive, lost girl I was, it's, you know, hence the name of the podcast being called Bullseye again, that I did find myself largely again a target for very, very creepy, very broken men as a result of this time of being very, very alone, very vulnerable and very scared. And the voices in my head started to grow louder and louder from this time and they were always much worse when I was on my own and I was always on my own in this place. And the silence would be kind of like this, like the phrase silence is deafening is what comes to mind because it was just this deafening, loud, yelling silence that I lived in at the time that I was trying to find enough to eat, trying to get myself ready for school in the mornings and not succeeding a lot of the time. Uh, It was just a very, very miserable time. And, you know, obviously, like looking back now, my mum could and probably should be charged, you know, by the law for what she permitted to happen during this time and the neglect and the way that she just completely left me to fend for myself It was a disgraceful thing to do and, you know, it's not that it wasn't in keeping with the rest of her mothering because it definitely is and was, but looking at it now, I just cannot, you know, as a mother myself, again, when I get to those thoughts, I always just think about my own child and think I cannot understand how anybody could, you know, just treat a child in the way that my mother treated me and was just so little regard, just no love, no care, no warmth, no nothing. It's truly baffling to look back on as I was, you know, in a lot of ways I was starting to be a very troubled or a kid that got into trouble a lot from this time on, but I wasn't a bad kid. I never was. And I know that. I'm not just saying that 
to whitewash things. I was a very good-hearted person and certainly didn't kind of deserve any of what was to come and the treatment from my family. But anyway, so yes, it gets a little bit dark. The next episode after this one gets dark because some pretty trippy things start to happen with men around the area that I lived in and some of the things that happened with particular people that, again, I should have been able to trust, one of them being the youth leader at the church that my mum had been involved with that she she wanted me to get involved with as well. So I ended up going to a youth group kind of thing and that the leader of that ended up being my next abuser. So, yes, that old chestnut where it's often somebody to do with the church and the youth group, that's usually somewhere in the mix of these stories, isn't it? Unfortunately, but yeah, I'll fill you in on all of it. And I thank you all so much for your support again. If you want to go to my Facebook page, my Bullseye podcast with Tams and Wolf, Tams and T A M S I N, Wolf W O L F E, and you can become a patron by just tapping on the You Want to Become a Patron post on that page. And I would so appreciate it if any of you do want to do that. And yeah, I'll catch you all next time. I hope you're all well and I send you lots of gratitude and lots of love. Bye.